0: Handwriting. It's handwriting.
1: Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Good to be back. And Adam Smith. Hello. And the focus of our episode will be comparative judgment. But first, Neil, what are you reading for?
2: Hey, what are you reading for? So I've chosen a blog this week, and it's a blog by... Uh, Harry Fletcher Woods it's called what's the best form of professional development and it's one of those things where you read it expecting Harry to have done all the hard work and for him to tell you what to do so within that he looks at uh, lesson study he looks at instructional coaching oh and he looks at teacher learning communities Um, and he effectively says when you think about um, confidence intervals all three options kind of do the same thing. But what's important is to look at the behavior changing mechanisms behind each of those items. And when you look at it through that lens of changing behavior mechanisms, all, it doesn't really matter what you do, as long as whatever you put in place has a certain amount of these behavior mechanisms. Uh, and depending on how many that you want will vary on what the actual output will be. So I found that really interesting given the current landscape where instructional coaching seems to be king right now. Adam what are you reading for?
0: Uh, well I had our first uh, in-person conference of the MPQLT uh, leading teaching I'm doing today um, and it was lovely uh, it was at my school there was a very good selection of sandwiches and uh, it was very nice to to meet um, lots of people that I sort of know through Zoom Um, And we focused uh, in the latter half of the session on different models of change and kind of looked at some that have been cribbed from the world of business um, that was kind of fine and interesting. And I've been thinking about organisations and things over the Easter holidays and reading a lot about finance. But ultimately, I just keep coming back to this EEF report that I'm really familiar with, which is putting evidence to work. Um, a school's guide to implementation, and what I really like about that is it takes these quite generic models of change and implementation and leadership, and it actually just lays out how they work in a school because a school is such a you know a complex organism and um, quite a different environment really to any sort of for-profit organisation. Um, and yeah, I just really enjoyed uh, re-familiarising myself with some of the recommendations in that report, and uh, especially thinking about. Um, legacy and thinking about how we we um had a head teacher come and visit who's incredibly been incredibly successful and very transformative but you know she said herself she's approaching retirement age now and it's a question for her of how she she makes change sustainable and I think that's something that's in that report how do you sort of leave a school behind how do you leave a project behind how do you leave a curriculum behind so yeah that's my what you reading for Kieran what
1: are you reading for they both sound fascinating and I'm really looking forward, on to the day that my watch you're reading for. It can be your RE book. How is writing going?
0: Because it's going to be
1: the seminal book on teaching primary RE. To be honest, it's going to be the seminal book.
0: Um, so, you know, when it comes out, um, <laughs> how's it going? Slowly. It's difficult combining um, a job with a ridiculous sort of uneven workload. And I also have, uh, I've, I have ADHD, which I kind of, struggled to concentrate on big projects, such as writing a full book, Um, so it got pushed back, Uh, I did some writing over Easter, I will do more writing over the summer, with an idea to getting it finished by the end of the summer, but uh, that's what I said this time last year, and here we are, so yeah, it's coming along, it's coming along, Um, thank you, that's very nice of you to say.
1: It'll definitely be worth the wait, and it is a massive undertaking, you know, my wife has asked me not to write any more books while the kids are still small. So, um, you know, so she understands what, what an undertaking is. I think that's a very sensible approach going for the, the big holidays because you, you do have a bit more mental space, if nothing else. My actual, re- what you're reading for is maths-based and it's, um, if nothing else, it's really, really interesting and it has some great sources to follow. And um, so it's called Using Diagrams as Tools for the Solution of Non-Routine Mathematical Problems. And it's by Marilena Panciara. And I, th- I recommend anyone get stuck in and then follow those sources you know i'm on this sort of rabbit hole within an exploration of non-routine mathematical problems and what they what they actually are and then yeah this one i find myself underlining every couple of paragraphs and going oh that's really interesting haven't thought about that so yeah that that's my what you're reading for so a few weeks ago we explored writing moderation on the podcast and one of the sort of main threads was the idea that we might be better served through the utilization of a model that incorporated comparative judgment when assessing the quality of writing in primary. And I thought, we need to follow this up more. And I know that Neil, in a previous role, you had utilized comparative judgment. And I know, Adam, you're utilizing it right now. And from what I've heard from both of you to to really good effect. And so I thought, who better to ask how we can get the most from comparative judgment? So I think Adam, I'd like to start with you and ask you, what does comparative judgment mean to you?
0: Comparative judgment is essentially um, a system of moderation, and actually more, more than moderation, a system of assessing writing, which uses which uses so much sort of volume of, of writing and so much volume of judgment that it creates a really reliable result. So what we do in our school is we use the Daisy Christodoulos uh, No More Marking, where we, they send a stimulus to the school. You know, it could be like a, an image, it could be um, a, a task that they have to complete, you know, it might be to write a book review as a recent one, to write an article about pets, um, an image of sort of some caves. Uh, it's a stimulus and then children get two lined pieces of paper and they they respond to that stimulus and it's really freewheeling. Um, they can respond I would say almost in any way. I mean, we would encourage them to respond in a way that's relevant uh, t- to the stimulus. Then when there's a national window, which is the big sort of year, I think it's annually, I, d- I don't think it's termly, I think there's one judging window for each year group annually. Those get collated, scanned in, and then added to a, a, nationally, a national collection of writing. Uh, And then when you so so that all goes off to no more marking. And then you get back this sort of judgment window and it's for teachers, you get a link and you sit and your screen is divided into two halves and you have two pieces of writing that are presented almost like PDFs. And it's beguilingly straightforward. You literally just choose the better writing and there's no, there's no, um, (sighs) It feels, yeah, it feels really um, almost too straightforward. You know, what? The, the question at the top says, which is the better piece of writing? And you say left or right. Now, I've actually done the training in person with Daisy Christodoulou. Uh, when I started at my job, I did it just before COVID. I think we did it in February 2020. And there's a lot more to it than that. And we've done a lot of training in CPD at our school about how to effectively judge um, those pieces of writing. And I'm sure we'll get on later to some of the pitfalls with, with that sort of, very simplistic system of judgment but then the idea being that enough people judge those pieces of writing and that you know a versus b it's almost like an eye test you know which is better a or b and then they narrow it down and narrow it down and narrow it down until you can you have two very similar pieces of writing and then maybe 50 teachers will judge those and you can then say well that one marginally is better than that one so you get back um a standardized score a bit like you do with the NFER where there's been so much judgment and so much assessment done nationally that you can be pretty this is like the best available assessment data so you get back an age standardized score and you might have you know your top writer would be 14.9 i'm in year five so you know we would hope they'd be an age 10 writing and you might have a 14.9 and then you might have a 6.3 at the bottom and yeah, essentially you you get a rank of all your students. And then obviously you can see in primary, you can see you've got your uh, greater depth, your expected standard and you're working towards. And then we, we would moderate that before we sort of decided on those. I mean, it's, you know, I know it's beyond levels, but they're essentially levels, aren't they? And then we uh, do internal tasks as well. So we have maybe 30 members of teaching staff. Um, so it's the same principle, but obviously the, the results are less reliable because instead of having... 150 teachers 200 of thousands of teachers judging you you only have 30 but it, it's the same system and the same principle you know I think if you talk if you if you go to the training with Daisy or you watch the videos or you hear her talk about it it is very the reliability factor is very convincing because if you might have one teacher who is just sitting there judging on handwriting um, it's weighed out by 50 teachers who are hopefully doing that but again we'll discuss some of the pitfalls later I think and some of the issues with it so so that is a little outline of comparative judgment if you don't really if you're interested in it then uh it is no more marking is the is the sort of brand name um I don't know if there's any other any other sort of generic options out there
1: uh, that, that makes a whole lot of sense and it's based on the idea that as humans we are ill-equipped to make judgments but we can more effectively make comparisons I think that seems to be the the underlying rationale behind it and certainly you know some of the things you're saying there you know like the reliability I think it goes a long way to play into our strengths as humans you know and you're saying simple and almost too simple you know and I think that's something that most teachers will sign up for Um, you know certainly at four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon you've got a choice between right moderation or something that's deceptively simple I know which one I would infinitely prefer to engage with
0: I've never experienced the sort of old model of writing moderation. I did some in year six last year, um, looking at it with other schools, but I sat in the staff room the other day and heard horror stories of some of the forms and some of the sort of staying at school until 8 p.m. with stacks of English books or stacks of, of pieces of writing and, and the the nitpickiness of, you know, has it met this standard? Have they used this particular piece of punctuation this way? So so from my my perspective, it is a vast improvement on anything that's sort of come before and I personally have found it to be very successful so if there's any uh, trusts or schools out there thinking about whether it might be a good thing to implement then I, I would suggest that it probably is actually on the whole. I think it is
2: a very powerful tool and the more and certainly when I whilst I was using it the more you looked into it the more you realized uh, you could look into it pretty deeply and have a look at what was actually doing so as adam says it's uh, simply you know left or right but you get the the ratio of left to right clicks you'll be able to see if a teacher has thought i'm just really really tired i don't want to do this so i'm just going to do all 50 judgments by just clicking right 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 assuming you have like system level access to normal marketing like you can see that it gives you an average time that teachers spent on The amount of judging that they have to do so you can tell if someone's just whipped through it in two minutes then that's the conversation that you can have. The most interesting bit of data that I found and perhaps most useful for senior leaders looking at how they can upskill teachers is the part where each teacher gets a almost like their own confidence interval for how accurate their judgments have been against the national standard. So if you have a case where you have your year four teacher's confidence uh, interval is way below what's going on and what other people are judging nationally, then, you know, that's, the com- that's a really good way to have that conversation with that member of staff and thinking about what a good year four writing might look like. So it's also a really good one that SLT need to be aware of as well. And as a when I was out of class, I always had to kind of you know, check it myself just to make sure you say that a minute out of the classroom feels like a lifetime. Uh, so it's always kind of good to be like well actually are my expectations vaguely where they need to be and that can be a real useful kind of bit of self-reflection for
1: yourself that sounds really really useful i think with the last episode and with what you guys have said so far we've established that comparative judgment is something that we should encourage schools to do and to utilize how can we get the most from it as a class teacher you need to look in a bit
0: more detail at the pieces of writing that are coming out so when we do our so we do termly sort of data input for writing and this is this is the backbone of it we get our standardized scores through and then we sit and have a a meeting or maybe it's not even a meeting really maybe it's just me and my year partner sort of going over a spreadsheet and we will sort of I I mean, it's sort of testament to how the system actually works is that there are rarely that many surprises. So you would rarely find. You would think if the system was unreliable, you would have to moderate it a lot. So you would find that your sort of greater depth writers were suddenly coming out. at the lower end of expected stand but that very rarely happens um you you do have the odd time when a child I mean it's like any piece of assessment where a child has not felt very well that day or or not felt like participating and then you have to moderate it against their sort of English book and what they're capable of in class we then take the pieces of writing that they do and we stick them in their English books as a sort of piece of published writing and then we might if there's time or wherewithal to sort of sit and conference those with students and talk about they've written and what kind of techniques they use i'm of two minds as to whether this is i don't this i don't think this is gaming the system but we do talk about how to write an impactful piece of writing when they do comparative judgment so one of the things that you will notice if you do a lot of it and it makes complete sense is that the first sentence and the first paragraph will be massively weighted in terms of the quality of that compared to the second page of writing because I would say 90% unless it's a really tricky judgment between two pieces 99% of the time you're not going to read the second page of writing most teachers will will again I think the the big elephant in the room that we will get to talk about is handwriting and we'll talk about that later but you know once you get past the handwriting you might read the first sentence the first paragraph the first two paragraphs so we would talk to students about using things like titles, subtitles. But again, I think we talk to the students about that when they do their sort of SATs writing anyway, we talk to students about that. So I'm not entirely convinced. (laughs) I don't know whether that's quite gaming the system or not really, but I think it's good. I think it helps them to think about how to construct a piece of work, helps them to think about how to lay things out, helps them to think about how to write for an audience, because ultimately they are writing for an audience, they're writing for a very large audience. And what I think Neil can talk to this uh, a bit more, there's a whole host of resources that have now come out around comparative judgment that are that are really um, well constructed to address some of the very, very common problems with uh, pieces of writing that come through, some of the reasons why they appear lower down in the ranking or why their writing age comes out lower, uh, things around sentence construction and grammar, punctuation, spelling and 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 things like that. Um, that have just come out now we we've been trialing those in our school I haven't been involved in it but it's been trialed in I think in year three and year four um, and I will be using those later on this year but I haven't had a proper look at them yet but I think that that's really interesting they're using a data-driven approach or at least a research-driven approach in terms of having this you know Daisy Christodoulou is presumably the owner I don't know if she really owns it but but her company has this huge data set of of um, what year one writing looks like, what year two writing looks like, what year three writing looks like. And it's good to see that she's using that to kind of create things that are very tailored towards towards the issues she's found. But I think she would say she's done that partially as a response to COVID as well, and to some of the gaps that have appeared since COVID. I don't know if you know much about that, Neil, or if you know more about it than I do. I
2: mean, pretty much exactly what you've said. Uh, it's looked at writing and found that those common denominators, which effectively comes to basic uh, punctuation i think uh, run on sentences where again links back to the punctuation where the children haven't realized they've done two sentences and haven't uh those properly and i think uh, sentence fragments where actually you know the students are writing a sentence and they forget to put the verb in or something like that and so i know it's almost in like a beta phase as- as far as I kind of, from my, my interpretation, I don't think they use that phrase, but that seems to be the interpretation that I get right now, where they're trialing a certain amount of resources. There's lessons, slides, there's CPD on how to avoid things like run on sentences and uh, avoid getting, making sure children avoid uh, fragments, etc., and there's also um, resources with um plenty of multiple choice questions. The idea is you do that typical before and after to kind of have a look at the progress. and I think it's to be part of it, you then have to agree that you give that data back to no more marking. and with that, they'll do some technical wizardry and be able to tell us a bit more about how effective their, their CPD is. And I can kind of see how they're they're going to take that then one step further and. You know move on to the next thing you know the next possible highest leverage thing but also keep on uh, improving that cpd offer as well um it's a kind of like optional but you don't have to pay extra so as long as you pay extra for because there are two almost kind of two versions of no more marking anyone can sign up for no more marking right now and you can kind of do an inter-school judgment or an inter-trust judgment and you can do that uh, free of charge because the algorithm is just the algorithm that um, works behind the scenes. If you buy into no more marketing, what you're effectively buying into are those uh, national tasks that Adam talks about earlier, which means that you can then compare your cohorts, you know, nationally at that kind of point in time. But and if you go for that option, which is don't believe it's crazily expensive, um, you get those additional writing resources with them as
0: well. Yeah, it's called the Writing Hub. Um, is the name of the the resources that are there. Yeah, I think we've been part of that research project. We, I know that they've definitely been doing a before and after to look at the uh, the effectiveness of it. I'm sure that uh, you know that that quite back to basics approach will be very helpful because I know how many run on sentences my year fives are capable of of
1: putting into a piece of comparative judgment. Let's say, when you were talking about the type of writing, especially when you talked about you know when you weren't sure if you were game in the system, what you were doing. From what I could hear was you were supporting children in writing the way, for instance, Christopher Such might advocate writing, you know, looking at things on a sentence by sentence level and on a paragraph level, you know, rather than the whole piece. Because if you have that level of, of detail and attention to what you're writing, I think your piece is going to be more impactful whether you've been taught it before you're doing um, your comparative judgment or not.
0: I think so. I, I think I agree, and I think also it's it's much more relevant to how we actually write as adults. Not necessarily talking about writing creatively, but writing in terms of thinking about constructing an email I sent. Actually, well, I was late for this recording because um, I got stuck in traffic in London, and I suddenly reread some of the messages that I sent you, Kieran, earlier, and I was like, gosh, if if I read these, I could see these. Actually, I was slightly worried they came across as quite rude um, <laughs> if you read them in a certain tone of voice. Well, flippant. Even though I was quite upset about being late, and it's that sort of thing. It's that awareness of of your tone and your awareness of how to write. As I get like I say, not writing a piece, but constructing formal, informal sentences, constructing instructional sentences, constructing uh, informative sentences. That that's actually far more relevant as a as a writing skill than the ability to write beautiful flowing prose with lots of synonyms which uh, and and reported speech so i'm quite in favor of that that kind of thing but then i've always been much more at ease teaching non-fiction writing than teaching fiction writing i get quite excited when we do a comparative judgment task uh, that has a non-fiction stimulus because uh, i think it's it's actually well i i'm applying my own personal biases here but i think it's more fun for them to write we actually Trialed using comparative judgment to do our science assessments. So we got students to write an, an essay in science, and I had you know that for me teaching that kind of writing is is brilliant because I just love teaching precise writing. I like teaching writing that is academic. I like teaching writing that is quite formulaic in a way. You know, sort of writing revolution stuff, topic sentences, and and con- uh, constructing really concise paragraphs. I I've spoken quite a lot before about how I think a lot of primary writing is, um, politely, uh, to put it, flabby, Uh, or florid, or, you know, uh, there's so many lovely children in my class who who are very much under the impression that they're they're absolutely brilliant writers, and I think that they might be, but uh, they're not precise writers. Um, and they, they love a synonym and they love, they've been taught, and, and I think this is not uncommon in, in any primary setting, that, that the real height of, right, the, real, the real writer's tool, you know, the, 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 the alchemy for writing is the thesaurus. And if they could master the thesaurus, then they can master the world. Without really knowing any of the subtleties of the differences between the synonyms that they find in the source, I've gone off on one there. So it doesn't take much, does it? But um, but yeah, that precision um, is is something that I really am keen to to teach, but also to learn more about how we how we t- how we teach that.
1: If you want to write at an academic level or at a high level, the more precise you are. The better received that will be, and the more effective it will be for whatever purpose it might be. You know, if you're writing a journal article, if you're writing a, an academic paper, you know, you need to say eighty thousand words worth of uh, material in about maybe five thousand words. You know, and so I think anything that prepares pupils for that world is is all right by me. Are there any other things, Neil, that you think we should do to get the most from comparative judgment? Certainly in my early experience of it, it was
2: used as a really nice summative form of assessment, which I would argue is its main, main benefit. And I know you have to be very cautious about trying to use uh, you know one assessment for both summative and formative reasons, but I certainly think you can think of a few once you've done a judgment, you get all your scripts back and you get a select highlight of um, the, I think it's like the the top 5%, a middle 5%, and a uh, the bottom 5% nationally as well. And so what you can then do is then thinking about is really kind of think about, right, well, what made these so good? And equally, you know, what didn't make these so great. And you can then think about, well, what, how does that impact my teaching in the, in the medium term? You might then think about actually, well, how do I need to, do I need to think about and consider the English curriculum and what we're actually teaching? And say, maybe spending that three and a half weeks on simile and metaphor isn't useful because actually what the top writers are doing, they aren't using simile or metaphor, but they are actually just writing really well and accurately and with precision with precision and so spend some time on that so I think there's quite a lot of work that you can do after the judgment has been made where you can kind of certainly if you're an English lead within a school or an English lead working across a trust you can kind of have a look and you know what are we doing well what are we not doing well and where can we improve and Kind of think about putting CPD in place to put those improvements in there, and that's kind of something that I rarely used it for. When I started to use it, I just kind of thought, "Oh yeah, great, we've got the uh, we've got the results. The results are back in. Um, isn't this nice to know that we're not the worst school, but we're certainly not the best school?" You also get trends. So obviously, the system uses data from your MIS. So you get a comparison between free school meals, non-free school, non-free school meals, boys v. girls, etc., cetera, et cetera. And so that's quite an interesting uh, bit of data that you also get from there. And again, if there are, again, they do produce confidence intervals. So if there's lots of, over, if there's quite a bit of overlap, then fine. But if you're seeing some significant uh, differences there, it may mean that you want to look at certain provision one thing i wish they would do was like a, a summer born versus a non-summer born because so i think that would be quite an interesting uh something to look at both nationally and kind of within the school system but certainly thinking about that data and using that data pack that comes towards the end is really effective and especially as i say i've always enjoyed giving the bottom giving that the middle five that they send nationally and the top five that they send nationally, you know, almost using that as a, a starter activity with staff afterwards being like, you know, which five do you think were the best? Which five do you think are the middle and be
0: able to explain your reasons why
2: because it just gets staff thinking about it as well that
0: that little bit more deeply. The data pack is a thing of beauty. I mean, we get we get it sort of gifted to us like a physical copy of it when there's been a national judging window and it has all those beautiful graphs with uh, confidence intervals and things like that and like like Neil says you can see um yeah you can see when your free school meals aren't doing as well as as your other students and things like that and um so I I really enjoy getting that pack and I really I I have to be honest I do quite enjoy the ranking (laughs) I, I do like to see who my top five are um and whether they whether I agree um with with that judgment And if you've been using comparative, if you've been using no more
2: marking for long enough on that national scale, they can trace that pupils back. So they can you can actually see that you can produce individual progress reports for each child or each kind of year group as they've kind of progressed through schooling. So you can kind of have a look and see, and then again compare that progress to the national average progress as well. So again, really kind of quite interesting useful information again you get that you get that progress by gender you get that progress by free school meals and people premium etc so yeah it really makes it quite interesting idea you know we talk about and I know uh, you know James Pembroke talks about well actually you know can we actually measure progress with the amount of data that you know you're kind of producing through this for this data to be created I would say it's as pretty close as you're ever going to be able to get it
0: it feels like there was a period of time not too long ago when we were having conversations of we we will never be able to accurately judge writing you know T, T it's so subjective and uh, i think what daisy's done here is come up with with the best sort of system for that that's why i'm so keen on it because i think it's it's an imperfect system but it's i think this is the closest we'll ever come to to kind of something akin to the nfer tests Um, in terms of confidence for for judgment I'd be interested to speak to secondary school teachers um, who are using this and see whether there's correlation between the kind of skills that you need to pass an English language paper and how this links in with the writing curriculum in key stage three and key stage four Uh, because it yeah like I say it doesn't it does require a certain shift of focus in your in your key stage 1 and key stage 2 writing not not anything major nothing radical but just sort of you know we did sit down as a school and think well if this is how we're going to be judging writing um then we need to think about how we're teaching writing not to model it to the to the assessment method but you know just that we're no longer going to be producing things that tick boxes we're going to be producing pieces of work that are that make an impact and and are written for an audience.
1: Certainly the savviest secondary teachers listen to this podcast. So let's make that happen, where we get someone in with you, Adam, and we talk about how the two processes marry up across phases. You know, that's definitely something I think very interesting to to explore. We've alluded at times already to this next question. What should we avoid when engaged with comparative judgment? Handwriting,
0: it's handwriting. Last year I had a greater depth writer, just superb writer, really accurate, really precise, really nice writing, really like a good writer, okay, and, and I'm sure they're doing really well at secondary school at the moment, very bright child, and they came out, I think they came out the bottom end of expected standard, Um, when we did our comparative judgment and you know I said there's very rarely any surprises and I wasn't surprised that they came out there but it was purely because they have chicken scratch handwriting and I mean really really uh, you know it really was quite remarkably illegible and that bias uh, towards poor handwriting equals poor quality writing is is impossible to escape I have sat through probably the best side of like two or three hours of CPD on uh, actually probably more than that, including the original CPD I did with Daisy. So maybe like five or six hours of CPD on, on how best to do comparative judgment. And um, I still have to consciously look past handwriting. And I think if I'm doing, you know, we do six at a time, uh, sort of towards the end of a term. And if I'm maybe on my sixth one, then it's it's totally possible that that making judgments based on handwriting is, is gonna happen. Yeah, I mean, I know we aspire that all students would have legible handwriting, but there's we have to detach the quality of their writing from the presentation of their writing and unfortunately comparative judgment if it's done by teachers particularly who are perhaps untrained or tired or you know any of these things it is always going to going to come back to to nice looking work
1: taking precedent over high quality work it sounds like you know some of those fail safes you were mentioning earlier on neil that they are the kind of things that might support us in overcome because it, it you know, like you say, Adam, you're, you're never going to overcome these biases that are sort of, sort of fundamental to being human. But I reckon it's easier to overcome handwriting bias than it is to overcome the biases that are associated with the subjective assessment of writing.
0: So I think my only concern with that is is the handwriting bias so inbuilt in the, in the sort of broader base of teachers doing the judgments that if you genuinely didn't have that handwriting bias, if you were saying these pieces of writing were terrible handwriting but high quality writing, are great and everyone else said they were terrible that you would actually get a personally a lower confidence score as a result of that but the, the good thing I mean you know I make a lot of fuss about this handwriting issue generally speaking there is a correlation between poor handwriting and poor quality writing you know I don't think that's that controversial to say that uh, there's a correlation it's not always there are always going to be outliers on either side of that correlation but it's just having had that personal experience of this student who consistently came back low end of expected standard when I knew from reading their English book or their history book or or um, anything else. But then then you know we we use it we we don't input the raw score as their as their their progress score. So I would always put them down as a greater depth writer in our in insight which we use for our data tracking because I I know them and I'm their teacher. So it's that there is that extra level of moderation. Uh, And I think that comes to the point that I think I heard discussed when this was discussed on the podcast last time is is the idea of replacing the writing sats uh, with comparative judgment. That student would have come out as low expected standard for writing. So I don't know, really. I'm not sure. Uh, I just, I can't decide whether the handwriting is a fatal flaw or whether it's such a rare occurrence to have a student who has terrible handwriting and excellent writing that it's that it's unimportant and it's, it's not worth throwing the baby out with the bathwater I think there are probably like two points to that one
2: is quite harsh is and is one of my unpopular opinions where unless there's a, a physical need um that, you know the we write for purposes and we write for an audience and if your audience can't read your handwriting then you've fundamentally failed at the art of communication and so I'm probably, I do agree there is the handwriting bias, but I kind of think that it, you know, more needs to be done to look at it as well. The other part and I'm hoping, and I did mention this last time as well, is that I'm hoping within like five years, I'm sure people who have like modern day smartphones, you can uh, use your camera to scan a piece of text, um, handwritten text, and then it's pretty good at converting it into a, uh, you know, regular print, as in on a computer. If no more marking could somehow, you know, put, and with the amount of writing that they probably do have, you, they probably have enough data points to create some sort of artificial intelligence. That means, as it gets scan, as it gets uh, scanned into their system, the you know, the mainframe can, you know, warts and all, mistakes and everything put those, should convert that handwriting into something that's relatively legible in print. And that gets done that for, you know, for every piece of writing. That's kind of one way they could think about reducing that handwriting
0: bias, I think. That's this, um, I mean, you know, this student in particular, we did a lot of handwriting intervention, but it really was illegible. And I really feel like that will be uh, an epoch-making moment in the history of computing, when a computer is able to read <laughs> um, a piece of text that he has written—it's almost like a Turing test. You know, if you spend long enough, you can understand what he was trying to say. But um, I don't think that a computer ever will be able to do that. Five or ten years, I hope.
2: <laughs> mark that. Mark that date down, Kieran. We'll have the three Rs, and we'll have—no uh, yeah, more mark. Comparative judgment. Computers
1: powerful enough to uh, to work all that out. I think whenever their computer is that powerful, then we've got bigger problems than the level of handwriting in our classes. We should be uh, (laughs) saying our goodbyes, I think. (laughs) When I was listening to you, Adam, I was thinking, oh my goodness, yeah, if you're the only person, if you're the outlier saying that this is good handwriting or this is good writing, and everyone else is judging based on the handwriting, then that totally flips that system. As I was like, scales from my eyes moment. I think the fact that it's possible, I think you're right. To worry about it and to to consider it. Are there any other pitfalls? So we've mentioned time, we've mentioned handwriting. Is there anything else you guys think is really important? The only
2: other one I would say, and I've seen it happen a few times, is when schools try to merge uh, no more marking, comparative judgment, with elements of the teacher assessment framework. And so by that I mean they are bringing, uh, you know checklists have been made for teachers are they going through you know do they have those hyphens do they have the commas for parenthesis do they have subordinate clauses to start a sentence and that really just kind of defies the purpose of it it really is just you just have to read it and decide what is best and if you're so used to that old school moderating where you're going through pieces and pieces being like I need one more example of a hyphenated word somewhere uh, for me to be able to give you that um, working at judgment and you go into this with that kind of mindset where you're really trying to find that level of grammatical detail you are defeating the purpose completely of what the whole thing is about and you're only wasting your money by using comparative judgment because that's not how the other X number of teachers are doing it. So it's not how it needs to be done. It's just purely which one do you think is right? But I've sat through a few meetings where we've discussed uh, checklists for teachers to use whilst they're doing that judgment uh, to look for specific punctuation grammar features, etc.
0: I think for me, there's um, an increase in confidence in the accuracy of comparative, or not necessarily that... The accuracy, no, in the the graininess of the data as we go up through the year groups. So, for example, a year one comparative judgment task will probably give you a good idea of whether a student is greater depth, expected standard working towards, or not even that necessarily, but whether they're kind of writing at an age-appropriate level, basically. Uh, whereas a year six task actually can be quite really quite interesting in looking at the intricacies and the different, you know, having a higher, well, basically looking at their reading at their writing age and looking at that. Uh, looking at months, there. Looking at kind of six months between two certain students, and why is this student six months below this one? Rather than saying, you know, again in year one that a student might be uh, literate or or not quite, and that's because a lot of the year one tasks that I've judged, and perhaps some of the year two tasks as well, you're often comparing two pieces of, as Neil says, like mark making, or you're comparing scribbles, or you're comparing very 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 short pieces of writing or writing that is completely off topic or something like that, you know, the, the that's the nature of writing in, in year one is that students are at very different levels with it. And so ultimately, com- when you're looking towards the lower end of that scale, comparing two different pieces of mark making and saying which is the better writing is a completely pointless task, because neither is the better writing, it's just mark making. So yeah, I would say that's that's something that we've also thought about. And I would say if I was a key stage one teacher, I'd probably pay less attention to comparative judgment. I feel like in year five and six it's quite quite a big event uh, when it comes around and perhaps in year one and two it's slightly more. Uh, this is an interesting bit of data and it tells us fundamentally you know who our most confident writers are and who our least confident ones are, but you probably are fully aware of that already
1: anyway. So I mean it's been fascinating talking to you guys. About comparative judgment. Before I let you go, though, are there any experiences that you think that would it would help those who are listening to share in them with you? You know, anything that's happened. You know, things they might want to um, you know, uh, learn from. You know, is there anything that really stands out? You know, there doesn't have to be.
2: I would just say Daisy usually does free webinars to evidently entice people and get more schools to sign up and more schools that sign up the more reliable hopefully the judgments are going to be they're normally about half an hour 40 minutes and if you're just thinking about I need something else right now to help us think about writing it's not going to be a waste of time I don't think also there is if you want to think about how it works and you can see how it works there's plenty Plenty. if you want to see how it works in practice i think on their website when you first search for it or very uh, one of the first elements of their uh, website you can do a comparative judgment against colors and the color the colors um the contrast between the colors uh, decreases as time goes on so you can kind of have that experience of ranking something so you can see what it's like so you get a bit of uh, Experience with it before, and only if you want to perhaps not listen to Daisy but read more about it. She writes about it towards the end of making good progress. Um, it's all algorithm based, and the algorithm I think is uh, it's available. It's it's a free algorithm. Anyone can I think can go and find this, and if you are savvy enough, could well, make it. It's not um, much more than that, as in what's going on behind it. But yeah, really interesting read at the end of making good progress about how she feels that it can work within a curriculum as the progression uh, model for assessment.
0: I I was really fortunate to have uh, some in-person training with Daisy in a school in South London um, back in just like I say, just marginally before COVID. And um, it wasn't a sales pitch. It was all people who had already bought into the system. It was designed for teachers who are new to using comparative judgment on myself, but I really appreciated how much detail uh, Daisy went into and how uh, she explained the entire system and the rationale behind it and how they were, you know, basically the confidence that they had in their results. And I think ultimately that is the most appealing part of this is that on the whole, it's a really accurate system. It's quite remarkable that you put in one singular piece of writing from a student uh, in your class that's done under quite unusual you know an unseen stimulus is quite an un- we, that's not how you'd write something in an english lesson and yet it comes back with a list that i ultimately agree with uh, in in probably 95% of cases uh, and even that 5% is usually quite a small movement up and down i think from memory the last time that we sat as a year group and looked at 60 children i think we probably changed fewer than fewer than three or four of the judgments in terms of like uh, out of those three sort of where they are related to their age standard and that, and that's really appealing for me as someone who likes data but also someone who likes reducing workload but also someone who likes to have a system that is that is the most reliable even though as we've said there are some uh, flaws that that are still inherent but those flaws can also be addressed with better CPD in school and I think we've been quite proactive in having CPD recently, you know, looking at why we do comparative judgment, reminding people that. But I don't really, uh, I think the one big flaw of your literacy lead is that you will spend a lot of your life chasing people up saying, have you done your comparative judgment? Have you done your... I, I searched earlier, we were looking for one of the reports and I searched at my email inbox for comparative judgment and it's literally just uh, 50 emails from our from our head of assessment saying just a reminder everyone that our comparative judgment window closes on Wednesday just a reminder everyone so actually quite often when it's our big end of half term instead of having a seat C- we usually have a CPD meeting on a Tuesday but you know everyone sits in their classroom and does six uh, comparative judgment tasks um so that's yeah that's probably the biggest like practical <laughs> consideration for it
2: you get the judgment windows pretty far in advance so if you can give a staff meeting for staff to get it done um, do that because then you're guaranteed for it to be done in a way that's not then rushed towards the end because it is one of those things they that seems like oh yeah I'm only going to do you know five minutes five ten minutes the end of the day Um, it rarely in from my experience it rarely happens like that Um, it's uh, you need to give teachers a, a block of time to to get it done. So, Kieran, we started out trying to find uh, five ways
1: that we could get the most out of comparative judgment. How did we do? I think we did it, Neil. You know, it was, it was fascinating listening to you guys talking about this. And, you know, part of me wishes I was involved in this more. One of my schools utilizes comparative judgment, but because I've got solely a mathematics focus, I don't get to engage with writing as much as I used to. But I think if we want to get the most out of comparative judgment, we use it. And the information that we get from it as a supplement, you know, looking in more detail at the pieces that we that we provide. We talk about how to write impactful writing um, or be more explicit about how to create more impactful writing. We consider the formative uses, for instance, what the resources are telling us about common weaknesses, so we can utilize those in whole class feedback, whole school feedback if we're leads and focusing staff thinking on common errors across their classes and our schools. We should utilize the comparison of data on a national scale, and we should consciously look past handwriting when engaged in the act of comparative judgment. I think if we do that, it sounds like we've got a really good model for getting the most from this and assessing writing as accurately as is humanly possible at this time. Around Christmas time, I would like to do comparative judgment of the first hundred episodes of Tatape to see if Christopher Such's reading episode comes out top on that as it does on the list. <laughs> would you be up for that, Adam? Would you join us for it? We'll talk to Daisy about seeing whether you can uh,
0: utilise the... Um do your own little internal judgment on it and see what happens.
1: Yeah, because they've, uh, they've done it with things like that before, haven't they? With, like, interest and things, haven't
0: they? I think you could probably, um, trying to think, it probably wouldn't be that hard to find a, because you can do it, f- there's a lot of, there's been, you know, a lot of those, like, uh, World Cups that they were doing on Twitter a while ago, a couple of years ago, uh, it's just essentially the same principle, you know, That you, well, it's not really the same principle, but, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of system or program on github or something that could could be used where we will have to decide which is the more interesting episode out of two episodes uh until we find out what well, the problem is then is that you will end up with the least interesting episode um
1: <laughs> so uh that's that's the worry i think we focus on the positive something to think about all i have to say is thank you very much for joining us thank you very much adam thank you kieran thank you neil thank you kieran thank you Adam. Thank you, Neil. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.